iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yo, technology, what is it all about? So the goal of what we're doing at Mammoth is to have a one-time treatment. So you well, would have, go in, you would get your treatment and then you would potentially be permanently cured of the disease. Eventually, if we you know, really have the ambition that I think we should have of tackling genetic disease broadly, that is going to be transformative for the healthcare system as a whole in a very positive way. But we have to figure out you know, how we're going to do that. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. I am your host, Danny Fortson, the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times. And this is your weekly peek behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. This week, we are talking about gene editing and the very exciting potential to maybe, just maybe, be able to cure thousands, and you heard that right, thousands of genetic diseases relatively soon. So if you didn't know, these are really exciting times in the world of biotech, and we have a fabulous guest on this week to tell us exactly why. Trevor Martin is the co-founder and CEO of a company called Mammoth Biosciences, and they are a billion-dollar startup that he started with Jennifer Doudna, a biochemist who won the Nobel Prize. Yes, that prize. For developing a technology called CRISPR, which you have probably heard of, it's a method that allows you to edit genes. And it does that by basically acting like a pair of scissors, uh, making precision cuts of DNA, targeting places, for example, that misfire, causing a certain disease, illness, whatever it may be. Um, so it was a huge advance that Doudna made. Obviously, she won the Nobel for it. And Mammoth is really the startup that has made the most progress in actually kind of turning that advance into a business of developing ways to kind of expand on that core kind of platform technology to target diseases. And obviously the prize is huge. And Mammoth also is interesting because of course, Doudna is part of the company. So it holds the possibility of really curing genetic diseases like sickle cell with literally one shot, like kind of presto changeo your disease is gone, we have zapped it out of your body. That sounds like science fiction, it sounds fantastical, but that's kind of the prize they're going after, and there are thousands of diseases like that that we know of today in terms of them being a caused by a malfunction of a certain place in your DNA, a certain place in your genes that we know about. So Martin started this company fresh out of grad school, with Doudna and her co-inventors. It's his first startup. They've raised a quarter of a billion dollars, achieved a billion dollar valuation, and obviously are working on some very big things. And as you'll hear, if they reach the promised land, it could be, you know, we're talking about a revolution uh, potentially in how it comes to treating countless diseases and how we approach healthcare generally. So it's a fascinating company and also just a really fun story of just trying to tease out, as I tried to do, from Trevor how he started a company with a future Nobel Prize winner as a fresh out of university student, how that came together and, you know, where they have got to in the intervening years. So you guys will enjoy this one. And it's just really important and something we should all know about because it's happening in the background, but it's happening. And it's very exciting if it works. So without further ado, here is Trevor Martin, chief executive and co-founder of Mammoth Biosciences. Enjoy. Well, thank you for having me to your HQ. Yeah, thanks for coming by. 
So I've actually seen your building, I don't know, a hundred times because drive along the freeway and you see the big green woolly mammoth. That's why we put it there. Yeah. <laughs> I think we have the best signage of any biotech in the Bay Area. I think, you, so. I think you might. I think you might. So first question, why a mammoth? <laughs> well, I think for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first is you probably heard of the idiom, the elephant in the room. And the whole point is you can't ignore it. Yes. Um, but I think a mammoth is even bigger and less ignorable. And that's the type of company we want to be is a company that you can't ignore and is making an impact. So. so before we get into kind of the backstory, a lot of people will know CRISPR, kind of know that name and know it's a big deal, but don't read, like if you ask them say to describe what is CRISPR and why is it a big deal? I think most people would be stumped. <laughs> so if you talk about what it is you're trying to do here what you're working on? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I think the way I think about CRISPR is a way to program life the same way that we program a computer. So if we think about that, what is the code of life? It's DNA, it's RNA. And you can think of these as kind of the, not just bits, actually, it's even more complicated because there's one, two, three, and four in terms of the, the pieces of information that can be encoded. But all of our cells say, you know, have a genome, have this DNA, have this immense amount of information. And how can we actually modify that and program that the same way we modify software code in a computer? And CRISPR, because Jennifer Doudna is one of your co-founders. Yep. Does she win the Nobel Prize for Yeah, for, for her pioneering work in CRISPR. Right. Yeah. So she helped create CRISPR. So CRISPR is, is, there, is this an accurate or just uh, something that has entered popular kind of um, understanding? Is it, think of it as like a pair of scissors, like genetic scissors? Yeah, I think that's a great way of starting to understand it. I think that's an incomplete story. I think that's a bit of the story of Mammoth as well, is how do we kind of go beyond what was possible with the initial CRISPR technologies? And we'll obviously get into this more, but I think some of the first uses of CRISPR were thinking of it as a pair of scissors. It's a way of sending a pair of scissors anywhere in this genome. And that's a very convenient way of modifying the genome in certain Mm -hmm. ways to say, turn off a gene um, and to like remove a function. But one of the things we're excited about pioneering at Mammoth is thinking about CRISPR more broadly, not just as a pair of scissors, but really kind of a search engine for biology. And how do I send any functionality anywhere Mm. in the genome, whether that's the pair of scissors that comes for free with the CRISPR system, or maybe that's some additional functionality that inserts a whole new gene or a whole new functionality, or that's something that changes the epigenetics of the genome at that location, or that's something that changes a single base pair. The only limit is your imagination in terms of things and functionalities that you could leverage with CRISPR, Mm. using CRISPR more as the search engine, as this kind of like delivery system for getting it to that location that it needs to go in the genome, but not only using the built-in scissors. Right. And the CRISPR discovery was that it's about a decade ago? Yeah, uh, we recently went past the 10-year celebration of uh, Jennifer's papers. And so just trying to understand kind of if we step back, and you can tell me whether this is an apt analogy, but it was like um, when we mapped the first genome, it took 15 or 17 years, however long, $3 billion, depending on, you know. A lot. Yeah, yeah it took a lot of money and a lot of time. And everybody's like, oh, my goodness, this is going to be a new era of medicine, et cetera. And then we got, what's the one? One, two, three, and me. Three, two, what is it? 23 and me. 23 and me. <laughs> got 23 and me and a few things. And that's like, that's cool. But it, just trying to understand kind of, it feels like we're still waiting for these big breakthroughs. And that may be an inaccurate perception. But the promise of genome mapping versus where we are today, all these years later, when we think about CRISPR being invented 10 years ago, how is that being used today? And what, how do you guys fit into that? So I think that brings up an interesting kind of story in the history of biology, which is you're right. Um, when we first sequence the human genome, I think there are very high hopes that we yeah. would cure all genetic disease very quickly. Um, totally. Yeah. And I think it's good to be optimistic, but obviously that you know didn't happen immediately after we sequenced the human genome, let's say you know, back at the turn of the century, basically. Yeah. Getting near a quarter century from that time. Yeah. Right. And I think the big thing that CRISPR is adding to that narrative and what we're pioneering at Mammoth as well is, okay, so we've sequenced the human genome and 
what that did is it really did help us understand a lot of the genetic basis of disease. Um, mm. And there's still tons of work to be done. And that's actually an interesting thing to chat about as well in terms of like, what do we understand in the genome and not yeah. understand? But that did help us understand a lot of genetic disease that's very debilitating mm. to many, many people around the world. But the problem is how do you actually cure it or right. treat it, right. right? It's not enough just to understand it. And I think that's what's so exciting about CRISPR is that it is this really exciting technology that allows us to, again, go back and kind of program the code of life and actually say, okay, like this is a locus in the genome that, you know, something's going wrong and it's causing a disease. We can actually use CRISPR to go and modify that location in the genome mm. and not just treat disease, but permanently cure disease. These things can't exist in isolation, right? You need to understand the genetic basis of disease. And then you also need to have the technologies to actually affect the cure. Right. So kind of Fair to say CRISPR has kind of standing on the shoulders of the mapping of the genome. Well, they work in tandem right. together. Yeah. And I think that's what's really exciting as the field pushes forward and as Mammoth continues to innovate on CRISPR technologies to develop different types of, you know, potentially permanent cures for genetic disease using whether that's double strand breaks, whether it's base editing, whether it's gene writing, all these different techniques. But really combining that with our knowledge of genetic disease and actually capitalizing on it and really being able to drive forward finally real, potentially permanent cures. Right, right. And so just so people understand, like, what is CRISPR? Like if I, like, so is it a, is it a process? Is it a tool? Is it a machine? Like, how does it work when you're talking about going in and manipulating genes? Yeah, it's a technology and CRISPR is an acronym actually for clustered regulatory interspace short palindromic repeats. Um, Understandable so you can why understand. they called it, yeah. CRISPR. <laughs> a little bit catchier, I would say. Um, and it's actually funny because the technology focus is often around this thing called the CAS protein, whereas CRISPR is actually this acronym for another kind of part of the system that is actually not the part that's usually the focus. Right, 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 um, right, right, right. Because right. what the focus is usually on is, is this thing called the nuclease, and that's a protein. Um, so you're probably familiar with you know proteins that are produced yep. by our DNA, and these are things that can have functionalities. And What's really exciting about the CRISPR protein is that it has this kind of search functionality where you can program it with this thing called a guide RNA. So think about it, you know, you go to Google and you can type a search string. Yep. Um, there's definitely kind of requirements on the search string. It's not, you know, free form in terms of what types of guide RNAs can be used with what types of CAS systems. But fundamentally, that that is the idea that you can very easily and reproducibly and reliably program this protein to bind to very specific regions of the genome. And you can then use that to say, okay, I know this specific region of the genome is you know, causative for a disease, and I know the specific mutation that yep. needs to be corrected, or maybe the gene just needs to be ablated entirely, or whatever, whatever method you want, right? And you can actually program CRISPR with this guide RNA to go do that. Um, and it's a very powerful concept, right? So across all the different diseases that you might uh, want to try and cure, you could potentially use the same CRISPR system, just programming it with different guide RNAs. And that's a very powerful concept because often in the history of biology, we've had to come up with a new protein yeah, yeah. every time we want it. And that's a very hard process. And there's no correlation across diseases, right? Like, you, you know, you might learn something, but fundamentally you're kind of starting from square one right. to go cure the next disease. And then, you know, we've seen the immense cost, the immense scientific risk. Mm. And I think one of the really exciting things about what we now think of as like a platform technology in biology, mm. like CRISPR, is that what if we can actually get better and better and we can actually you know, build on the success of the first disease that we work on and just switching out the guide RNA start to tackle additional diseases. Right. And kind of point the heat-seeking missile to a different target. Exactly, and being able to build on the success in a very direct manner in terms of delivery, in terms of safety, in terms of the efficacy of the system. And I think that's one of the things that's really exciting at Mammoth is that long-term, we're really not about building just one therapy, mm. right? How can we build many therapies in a way that's different from companies that have come before? You started this company in 2017? Uh, yeah, late 2017. What were you doing before? Uh, I was a graduate student at Stanford in biology. What's interesting there is actually uh, my background is not CRISPR biology. It's actually computational biology. Mm. But I think there are interesting parallels in the sense of back when I got started in computational biology many, many years ago, it felt like a separate field from biology. It's like, oh, like computational, like, oh, we're doing math and biology. And, you know, it's obviously, you know, surface level comment. But I think what's exciting now is that I think in many ways it's silly to say computational biology. I think all biology is computational at this point. And I think 
towards the end of my career in graduate school, I started looking at synthetic biology and felt that it was where computational biology was many years before in the sense that this is going to be ubiquitous in biology and it's going to it's going to be you know fully integrated over time but there's this exciting inflection point where the field is really arriving into its own and there's all these exciting innovations and the clear standout of that was of course the work Jennifer Doudna and her lab was doing and I was very fortunate to be able to team up with the inventors of the technology so Jennifer Doudna and then uh, two of the inventors from her lab, Janice Chen and Lucas Harrington, who are actually inventing these technologies and driving them forward and at the tip of the spear of what's next in CRISPR. And by combining together with this thesis that Cas9, which is the kind of first CRISPR system in these papers, was just the beginning and that there's this whole universe of CRISPR technologies, including you know different nucleases that have different properties that can you know, have various advantages, especially if you want to go in vivo, so inside mm. the body rather than doing things outside the body. I see, I see. And that's really important if you want to think about permanent cures for genetic disease and going after the vast majority of disease, right? Right, right, um, right. But that right. can be very difficult because then you have to deliver it somehow into these cells, mm. like into like the lung or to the brain or to the muscle. Right. And that's where at Mammoth, we've pioneered new CRISPR technologies that, for example, are ultra small. And that means that they can actually be more effectively delivered using both viral and non-viral techniques to actually get to the tissues where they want to go in ways that others can't do. But it's not just on the CAS systems. It's also looking at what you mentioned at the beginning, which is, is it just double-strand breaks or can you go beyond that? And we're not a company that says like, oh, there's one technique that is going to be useful for every disease. It's not all double-strand breaks. It's not all vasectomy. Again, it's a platform, right? And at Mammoth, we're really pioneering the broadest portfolio of technologies across different modalities, whether that's space editing, gene writing, double strand breaks, so that we can be driven by the disease biology rather than being driven by whatever we you know, right. licensed from a university. So instead of having a hammer and therefore every problem has to be a nail, yeah. you're building a whole bunch of CRISPR-based tools to go all after a plethora of different diseases right. that are, have different genetic functioning. Yeah. So you can be driven by the science, not driven by whatever technology right. you happen to have access to. Got you. And this is, for people in the industry, probably an obvious question, but what is the problem you're solving? Like, what is it? What is the pain point that you're going after here? Because we can talk about drug discovery and how, you know, the, it takes a decade and a billion dollars, you know, to get a single drug past the FDA. Is it that? Is it targeting diseases that have been intractable? Because it f- feels like there's no end of human ailments and suffering and What are you focused on? Yeah, it's a great question because when you have a platform technology like CRISPR, I mean, it's basically limited by your imagination what you can do with it. And I think at Mammoth, we've really innovated across, you know, a wide variety of areas. But the ones that are really the focus are in particular, how do you bring these CRISPR technologies into the body so you can actually go after permanent cures, Mm -hmm. right? Right now, you know, a lot of the focus is what we call ex vivo, so it's like outside of the body. So these are things where you can actually take the cells out of the body or put them back in, like you know, blood-based disorders mm. or, or the limited tissues where you can more directly ask, access them, like say like the eye or something. Right. Really, the frontier here is the vast majority of disease is unfortunately diabetes, not things you can access. Diabetes, that way. cancer, heart disease. Well, even Mendelian genetic disease, like you know, the over four thousand Mendelian genetic diseases. These, Mendelian. Um, so these are diseases that we know are caused. That we they have a very specific genetic cause by okay. just a single locus in the genome. Oh wow, really? Yeah, and it's just you know very clear that what the genetic basis is, and there are thousands of these, the vast majority mm. of which do not have cures today. And at Mammoth, for example, by pioneering these what we call ultra compact CRISPR systems, mm. so. If you think about proteins, you know, they're all small, but if you zoom in on the size of proteins, there can be these huge differences in um, uh, how big they are. And CRISPR systems, the legacy ones, are actually, you know, quite large relative to many of the ways that we would like to deliver them to actually get them to the tissues where they need to go. So by having these ultra-compact systems, you can think of it as having, you know, like a a smart car versus a big Mm semi-truck, and you can go a lot more places with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one of the fundamental innovations that we're really excited about driving forward at Mammoth so that you can actually tackle disease, especially beyond the liver, for example, like going to muscle, going to brain, going to other tissues where there are all these diseases and other technologies and companies really struggle to go there because you just can't get the technology where it needs to go. This 
it's kind of a funny question, but it just occurred to me just talking about like, you know, those 4,000 plus diseases. A few years ago, Mark Zuckerberg, when he was setting up his foundation, was like one of his uh, goals is to quote unquote cure all disease. And everybody was like, that's like right out of Silicon Valley, like the show. Is that realistic? I mean, because you're on this kind of coal face of actually the way I'm thinking about it is like if you can kind of target the one locus that causes all of these things, that feels like a big deal if you can actually do that repeatably and at scale and, you know, save a bunch of lives. The more we learn about which genes misfire and cause which ailment, if we now have this system, which you guys are building, to go target those areas, that feels like maybe that goal isn't as ridiculous as it sounds or sounded. But uh, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I hope one day we cure all diseases. I think that's a worthy <laughs> goal, no totally. matter how you slice it. But um, at Mammoth, we're focused on starting with genetic disease. So mm-hmm. um, when we talk about genetic disease, um, some of the clearest examples are these uh, what we call Mendelian inherited diseases, where there's just a very clear, let's say even single gene that is causative for the disease. What are some common genetic diseases that... So like sickle cell disease okay. um, is a very clear one that is, you know, can be debilitating for patients. Yeah. And the genetic basis has been known, but there are still many patients that suffer from it. Yeah. And I think what's interesting here is that diseases are, can be on a spectrum, right? So on the one end, you have like purely genetic disease. And then on the other hand, you have purely environmental, let's say like a radiation poisoning or something. You know. Smoking. And, you know, whatever. many diseases yeah. are somewhere in the middle where... Mm-hmm. There's both a genetic and an environmental factor that's influencing it. So to start, it can be helpful to go after diseases where there's clearly just a dominant genetic component because it is a novel technology and you want to make sure that there's not confounding factors that could influence whether or not you're actually curing the disease. And also what it turns out is that there hasn't been many ways of addressing these. So there's mm. huge unmet need in these populations yeah. for you know rare genetic disorders, especially. And there's yeah, just immense benefit you can bring to patients by starting there. So I think this is another area where it actually intersects with earlier in our conversation around our understanding of the human genome, right? And when we look at, you know, sequencing human genome and like now sequencing more and more people and going from sequencing one reference genome to then dozens to then thousands to now tens of thousands, and now people are planning for hundreds of thousands Mm -hmm. to millions, right? What's exciting there is that hopefully we begin to expand our understanding of the genetic basis of disease. Because right now, there's many diseases where there's not a good enough understanding. And you wouldn't necessarily know what you Mm. need to change in the genome to cure it, right? Or to prevent against it, or whatever metric you want to use. So I think these technologies are very much hand in hand in terms of the development, in terms of what we're doing at Mammoth to bring CRISPR to more tissues, to bring it into the body so that we can have access, you know, potentially more diseases and our understanding of the disease in those tissues right. as we, you know, sequence more individuals, as we get a better understanding of what's actually driving these. I think those are going to be a virtuous cycle um, right. as they advance. And it, like, for example, sickle cell, if you can crack that nut, so to speak, would it be like... I don't know, you get a shot and the heat-seeking missile goes in there and takes out the one target that you're aiming for and it's gone? Yeah, so the goal of what we're doing at Mammoth is to have a one-time treatment. So you would have go in, you would get your treatment, and then you would potentially be permanently cured of the disease. And that's transformative for a patient, right? That feels like science fiction. Yeah, I think that's what's exciting about CRISPR technology and where mm. we're at in biology and this idea of programming biology the same yeah. way we program a computer is that this is something that, yeah, I mean, even when we sequence the human genome, it's hard to imagine. But I think that we really do have the opportunity to make these impactful changes on a patient's life um, in ways that weren't possible before the advent of CRISPR. I think that it has implications not just for patients, but also our healthcare system. For sure. Right? Like, are we set up for technologies that can actually potentially be curative Mm. versus, you know, treatments you take over the course of your life? Of course, it's going to start in small ways and like limited diseases as these things roll out. But eventually, if we, you know, really have the ambition that I think we should have of tackling genetic disease broadly, that is going to be transformative for the healthcare system as a whole in a very positive way. But we have to figure out, you know, how we're going to do that. 
VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on, settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. And so what are you working on right now? So in other words, like that vision that you just laid out, which is quite fantastical, how do you get there? And is there, I mean, I know this is science and it's biology, which is hard, but do you see any reason why we won't get there? Yeah. So you take it one step at a time and there's always risk, right? I mean, it's yeah science it's biology so, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. you know biology is not necessarily as squishy as people say but it's <laughs> you know one of the it's not that's software. what makes it so yeah, exciting yeah. right is yeah. that it is one of the hardest things you can work on in terms of you mm-hmm. know, giant data sets that you can use and you know very like interesting engineering within mm. the cell and you know it's it's what makes us alive and just yeah. really you know exciting ways to think about so i think in terms of what we're doing at mammoth is taking it one step at a time and saying, okay, we've built out the broadest portfolio of CRISPR systems and technologies in the industry, and then we need to start moving that towards the clinic, both ourselves and Mm. with partners. And this is where, at Mammoth, we are building a long-term biotech company. This is another thing we can get into as well, is that we really are building this company for the long haul, and a lot of biotech companies are built kind of to sell to pharma. And these aren't for bad reasons. There's, you know, it's because when you're making your second drug, it's just like there's no reason not to. You just start pushing yeah, the boulder up a, a whole right. new boulder up a but whole But if new you value. actually have a CRISPR platform like we have at Mammoth, then you really have one of these rare opportunities as long as you have the right combination of team and technology and, frankly, ambition to actually build a lasting biotech. And there are some exa- – like Genentech's a great example. Mm. But they're rare. And I think at Mammoth, we have that very unique opportunity. And we have the inventors of the technology, my co-founders, Janice and Lucas, and of course, Jennifer, who are helping lead the company. And that's incredibly unique in biotech as well. Um, And I think it helps us have that long-term vision. So, you know, in the near term, we have these foundational partnerships that you might have read about with uh, Bayer and Vertex, um, where they're bringing immense expertise in, you know, certain disease areas. And we're working together on these in vivo therapies. And that's in addition to internal work where... We're starting with things like the liver because those are the areas that are, you know, quote unquote, the easiest, let's say, right. to deliver to. But we're starting there and then we're going beyond, going to muscle, going to brain, going to other areas mm. and building on that rather than starting, you know, ex vivo or in other areas and then kind right. of ending in the liver. So I think we really do see it as taking it one step at a time and knocking out each risk at each step. But yeah, as long as you do that and as long as you go through each part, you really can arrive at that promised mm. land and that really exciting era of being able to tackle potentially permanent cures for genetic disease across a wide variety of right. tissues. Where are you from? Georgia, but I don't have the uh, accent, as you might you have don't. noticed. I listened <laughs> listen to too much NPR as a kid. The rest of my family has very thick Southern accents. <laughs> what part of Georgia? Uh, just north of Atlanta. Okay. Duluth. okay. I presume you were into science from an early age? 
Yeah, no, I was for sure. Probably more physics than biology. I had great teachers in both areas, but I think I naively thought biology was stamp collecting and that physics was actually <laughs> learning the rules of the universe. But in college, I was very fortunate to join this program at Princeton called uh, Integrated Science that was run by a professor named uh, David Botstein. Mm. And he definitely, I think, was ahead of his time in terms of even for undergrads, like I was teaching biology as this holistic discipline that actually was just as much math and computer science and physics mm. as it was biology. And that made me fall in love with biology because I think that really resonated. And now I think sometimes you have to kind of stop physicists from finding <laughs> too much on these things. But back then it was a revolutionary idea right. that you should have mathematicians spending all of their time thinking about biological problems. So I think that that's when I really fell in love with biology as a discipline. And you come from an academic family? I guess somewhat. My parents do have higher education. Dad's chemical engineering and mm. my mom is in software. So definitely right. some education. Yeah. Right, right. How did you get to the point where you're like, I'm going to start a company trying to solve this, pardon the pun, mammoth problem? <laughs> um, we might have used that one. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. But yeah, how did, how did you get there? Well, I think towards the end of graduate school, I knew So that you were at Stanford yeah. for graduate school, getting a PhD in computational biology. In biology, but biology. yeah, working yeah. in computation. Right. Yeah, right, right. Very much computational, not not at the wet lab. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Just yeah, at a yeah, computer. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I don't think I've pipetted since undergrad. Um, <laughs> so I love research and honestly you'll never finish a phd if you don't because it's you know five six plus Hard years yeah yeah, yeah a lot yeah. of that so yeah no truly loved research but and sorry when you went in were yeah. you like i'm gonna go be an academic i'm gonna go do research this is gonna be I my life i honestly didn't know what i was going to do i just yeah. knew i loved research and right. a phd is a really <laughs> awesome way to yeah, work yeah. with smart people and do research yeah i don't think i necessarily knew what would come out of it for better or for worse. Mm. Um, but towards the end of my graduate career, for a couple of reasons, I definitely knew I wanted something different. So one is on just the personal development side. I think a PhD is amazing in terms of pushing the boundaries of like your thinking mm -hmm. and the academic discipline. And of course, you know, the whole point is to push forward the you know, threshold of human knowledge, which is like super exciting to do. But from a personal development standpoint, there's not many, in my experience, many forcing functions to kind of develop as an individual and no. have pressures to no. challenge your personality and mm. challenge like how you operate. Um, and I think that's something just from a personal side that I really craved actually, you know, you're kind of in this bubble, especially at Stanford, you're in this bubble and especially in PhD, you know, there are five, six years and you, you know, put your head up and then like the world is moving and yes. you're doing yes. exciting science, but you can be the same person basically. Yeah. So I think I wanted way more personal development. Oftentimes, people be like, I'm going to go, I don't know, be a skydiver or rock climber yeah, or do I something guess like that. That's why a lot of grad students rock climb, I guess. Um, <laughs> but the more, so that was like a personal part. But the more important part, and the second part is definitely the impact, right? So hmm. publishing papers is cool and getting citations, you know, is exciting. But like, what does it actually mean for the world? Like, what, and that's not denigrating it at all, but it's just for me personally, I started to really crave. What's the translation, especially being a computational biologist where you're like mm. even more steps often removed yeah. from the actual translation of it? And being at Stanford, there must be something in the water. So an obvious solution to both of those is, oh, okay, what, what's a startup? Like, yeah. It seems like you can actually take technologies and bring them all the way to a patient and actually be a part of that journey. And I've heard startups force you to develop <laughs> <laughs> Careful what you wish for on that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so those are kind of things that were swirling around in my head. And the one thing that's never taken me wrong in my career, or two things, I guess, is that you should always work with the people you respect the most and that are the smartest people in the room. Mm. Whenever I'm the smartest person in the room, I'm starting, I'm looking yeah, for the yeah. exits. It's <laughs> like, uh, the Groucho <laughs> Marx quote around, you know, yeah. I wouldn't want to be part member of a club. Oh, club that will accept me. Have me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so when I met Jennifer and Janice and Lucas, that was obvious, like top of their field, pushing forward the frontier of what's possible in CRISPR and just, you know, amazing people that I wanted and the Nobel Prize with. just hanging around. Well, not at the time. But, <laughs> oh, right, right, I mean, right, right. Yeah, of yeah. course. But just these yeah. are the types of people that whenever I'm moving around my career, I absolutely want to work with. Mm. And then the second part is that I've always thrived at the intersection of fields. I think especially in college, I realized 
if I wanted to be a straight physicist, I honestly don't know if I'd be a top one percent. <laughs> and if I wanted to be like a straight computer scientist, but you know, I could be a pretty good mathematician <laughs> scientist and a pretty good biologist. And that intersection is where I could be top of you know my game and actually contribute something unique. And I think this field really hits those boxes as well in terms of now you have the intersection of you know startup and business and engineering and biology and like this is really at the intersection of like a lot of different fields so those two things are definitely things that just made it a very easy choice to me one of course operating at the intersection of exciting developments and exciting fields and being able to synthesize those together and then two the people that I could work with and the things that we could build together right yeah. and do you have siblings Yep. Uh, I have a brother and a sister who are twins and uh, six years younger than me. I was going to say, because that sense of trying to kind of make a dent sounds almost competitive. <laughs> um, I have two brothers and a sister, and there was a lot of kind of... Are you the youngest or the oldest? I'm second. Oh. I'm second. So I was always competing with my older brother. That's good. And there was kind of, yeah, it, it ingrains in, at least personally, it ingrains in you like a kind of like striving kind of constantly. Mm -hmm. But as the older brother... I imagine you were always kind of king of the hill at the, at the ask, house, especially six ask years. My young, younger brother, yeah. <laughs> Better question for him. Um, no, I mean, I think we all have very different personalities, actually. Mm. My brother and sister are in Georgia and, you know, doing great in their careers, but I don't think they'd ever want to leave Georgia. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whereas yeah. I got out for college. Didn't look so, back. Yeah, I like the place for sure, but. It's interesting to reflect on you know, how your upbringing influences like, you know, the direction you take. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing I value a lot is that my parents definitely invested a lot in education. Mm. No matter what else, they uh, knew that that was something that would be priority. Like, a priority. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I had never been to Atlanta until I went to my now sister-in-law's wedding in August in Atlanta. I've never been so hot in my life. Uh, yeah. I felt like I was about to melt. You're very hot. <laughs> but I was also wearing like a, I was living in London at the time. I was wearing a very thick uh, wool yeah, suit. From London. It was bad. It was a bad look for me. Yeah, a lot but, of mosquitoes as well. But Atlanta's changed a lot since I left. It's a yeah. metropolis now. <laughs> how old are you now? I'm 33. 33. So going back to the, how you kind of got to the point where you're going to start a company. Mm -hmm. So you have all these ideas swirling. You kind of have some realizations. So then how does this come together? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the critical event was uh, getting to know Jennifer and yeah. Janice and Lucas, who are the actual inventors of the technology. And they were at Stanford? I know they were at uh, Jennifer's professor at Berkeley, and they were all at right. Berkeley. Yeah. Right, right. So a rare Stanford-Berkeley team. I was going to say, yeah. that's, that's kind of sacrilege. It turns out uh, graduate <laughs> students aren't so bound by football traditions. Yeah. And how did you guys meet? Yeah, so originally just email to Jennifer. Cold email. <laughs> you know, just really exciting paper and, wow. you know, really interested in what you're doing. And then she very quickly introduced me to the inventors of the technology, Janice and Lucas, who were working with her. And yeah, really hit it off in terms of the vision for the future of the company. And so the already you were talking that early stage, you're already like, could we, let's make a company out of this. Oh yeah, definitely. I think. And you were still a grad student at the time? Uh, just graduating. Right. Yeah. And Janice Lucas and Jennifer are extremely entrepreneurial as well. And I think that's part of how we meshed together, yeah. frankly. And yeah, had a lot of conversations around like, you know, what should Mammoth be and like, mm. you know, what should we build? And I think what's exciting there is that, you know, we continue to deliver on a lot of that beginning conversation in terms of right. like, how do we drive the forefront of CRISPR? both in therapeutics and beyond. We also have pioneered diagnostics and pioneered whole new ways of doing molecular detection with CRISPR. Mm. And I think that's something that's very unique is to be at the forefront of technology and then also building a lasting company and actually building yeah. something that can sustain. And that's where we've been very fortunate over the journey, you know, from those founding days of myself and Janice and Lucas and Jennifer to now having a really awesome team of, 180 people today, including a really great executive suite, so that you have this unique combination of the founders and also the inventors of the technology and experienced biotech executives. And I think that's how you build a lasting biotech. That's yeah. how you build like a Genentech or these other companies is you have that combination. And yeah, in tech, you know, there's like the move fast, break things. And that doesn't totally apply to biology. Yeah. You need to, you need to know which rules are there for a reason. 
But I think that's a very powerful combination. And we've seen this in software as well back in the day, like in the 80s, you would kind of have to have the experienced person that's done it before. And that's the only way you can do a startup. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. you had this shift of like, you know, founder led tech companies. Now it's silly to say now it's like, okay, all tech is founder led. But in biotech, that's a very new concept, honestly. Mm. It was like, here, you researcher, you stay over there and do your research. Yeah, and, and we'll, we'll license it out of the university and right. we'll get a bunch of people to go right. run it and like you keep inventing things. Yeah. And I think that's a testament to Jennifer and Janice and Lucas. They were very entrepreneurial and Janice and Lucas especially had the ambition and the idea of, no, we should be building Mammoth to last and we should be mm. leaders in this company while driving forward the innovation. And I think that's a very unique secret sauce to Mammoth yeah. and to this next wave of kind of platform founder-led biotechs is combining that founder ethos and yeah. vision and kind of long-term planning, you know, of course, with experience and with a team. And as long as there's, you know, mutual respect and like appreciation for the vision across everyone, that's a really exciting combo where you can build a real company that has impact for patients over decades, not just right. years. And so you have Jennifer and Lucas and the third. Janice. Janice. They invented this. Yeah. You come in via cold email as a 27-year-old recent PhD graduate. How is it that you ended up being the CEO? Because I think it's also, it's I'm just fascinated by these kind of stories and how they kind of come together. Because... As you say, there's a secret sauce to when things work and, you know, if they don't work, there's no secret sauce, et cetera. But like, because I imagine you're the youngest. Uh, no, they're slightly younger than They are slightly younger than The Janssen Lucas. Right. But yeah, how did that end up, especially as you coming in as kind of like the outsider to this? Yeah, I think outsider perspective can be helpful mm. in terms of just bringing that kind of objective <laughs> perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, you know, obviously do have a scientific background and a PhD in biology, but definitely not an inventor of the technology yeah. and coming from a different field of the space. So I think it really comes down to personality and vision and mm. kind of sharing that ambition of where the company can go and where it should go mm. and, you know, building that respect and trust. How's it been being a founder slash CEO slash building company from an idea to 180 people. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't trade it for anything is the honest truth. Going back to what we were talking about before, be careful what you wish for in terms of personal development. <laughs> and, I know. imagine you've had a lot of personal development. Yeah, and I think that's what's yeah. exciting, right, is not only do you get to help shepherd a new technology to, to something that could, you know, potentially cure patients, mm. diagnose patients, like, you know, can really have a huge impact on people's lives. But also, you know, the name of the game is learning. And if you like doing a PhD, I guess you like learning. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, very different learning from what you're doing a PhD. And I think it's all about that slope and like mm. maintaining that high slope of learning. And I love that, especially in this role, that's what you have to do. And that's like kind of your job. Is yeah. There's always a new challenge every week, every month, maybe not every hour. <laughs> but you're always having to kind of go and learn something new. And I think mm -hmm. a big part of my philosophy is, especially when you're in a startup, you're never going to be the expert at everything, right? I think that's a trap. Like, yeah, you read all the books, listen to all the podcasts. You should, okay? <laughs> read but all the care. Twitter threads about, yeah. oh, this is yeah, my yeah. 10 secrets. I wish I would, blah, right. blah, blah. Yeah, but yeah. there's only 24 hours in the day. Yeah. And there's a million things, right? So I think there's a couple of things I index on very heavily. And one of the top ones is how do you assemble the team that is the expert and then you can trust to really, you know, build out all these things that you need. So I got advice early on that in my role, there's three things you should really do. And I think this is held very true in the spirit of Twitter threads. So the first one is uh, the direction of the company. Like, so what's the North Star? Like, what's the most important things? And like, what's the vision and the direction that the company should be headed towards? The second one is hire the best people in the world mm. to do that. And then the third one is to not run out of money in the meantime. Key. Yeah, especially in this environment. <laughs> yeah. So, and I think that's all true. Is like those three things are yeah. really the key. And I think of those three things, you know, you have to do all of them. But I definitely have a special place in my heart for finding the best people in the world mm. and enabling them and trusting them to deliver. What's been the hardest part? Well, I think the hardest part is definitely you don't learn people management in graduate school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and. I think that's what's exciting too, right? But that's, you know, to be frank, definitely the hardest part is that's not something you're trained 
anything can be learned. And of course, that's something you either want to do or not. But I think that's an area where I've definitely undergone the most personal yeah. development on my journey. Did you ever have a moment where you're like, maybe this is not the job I should be doing? This is just <laughs> too hard. Because when I ask any version of this question, it's always about people and oh, managing people. Yeah. I love interacting with people. So that makes it like, I mean, of course, it's a roller coaster, right? Yeah. Like sometimes it sucks and sometimes yeah. it's amazing. And hopefully the amazing outweighs the suck. But yeah, early in my life, maybe I thought I was an introvert, but maybe I'm really a extrovert. <laughs> I don't know. I, mean, I haven't taken a Myers-Briggs in a while. But right. yeah, there's going to be ups and downs, right? And it's going to be all over the place. But I think the core is you really have to like interacting with people and like the people mm. you're interacting with. Yeah. And that makes it, no matter what, like worth it very easily, right? Even in the darkest of dark times, I think as long as you are like, okay, this is the right team, like this is the people that are going to get it done, and this is the direction, and there's the path to like the promised land here. Of course, you're always going to like, right? Not even a doubt, right? How much money have you guys raised to date? Over two hundred sixty-five million. Two sixty-five, and you're worth a billion something. Yep. How was raising that first round, and was it like? Oh, by the way, we have this the dream team inventors of CRISPR. Was it was it like super easy or was it still hard? Because also you are a first time founder. Yeah. You were young, just out of grad school yeah. in biology. Yeah, no, it's an interesting question. I don't think any rounds easy. Um, <laughs> although, yeah, I mean, obviously there's definitely some heady venture days the last few years. Mm -hmm. But I mean, yeah, we raised our first round. I think like early 2018 or so. And yeah, I mean, the market was good, but it wasn't 2020 or no. <laughs> 2019. So yeah, no, we pounded the pavement. I think I still have a spreadsheet somewhere with, you know, however many hundreds of no's. investors we talked with. Mm -hmm. ah, no's are rare, usually just, you know. Not well, yeah, it's usually, <laughs> I've been told that like VCs never say no. Some do. And I really appreciate that actually, mm. but it's very rare. Because saying no actually kind of. Uh, there's not much upside. No. And there's like, they don't have, they have less optionality, which right. VCs don't like to give up on. Yeah. It's all about optionality. Yeah, um, but like, no, for yeah. our first round, we were very, very fortunate to partner with a great firm that was actually just getting into biology at the time, which was NFX. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So James and Omri there. Pete Flint was on this podcast many months ago. Oh, awesome. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So NFX has been an incredible supporter since the very first round. Mm. Definitely, that was a very great foundation to build on. And then uh, we, after that, raised our Series A with a Mayfield Fund. Yep. And then we did our Series B with Dechung Capital. Uh, and then our Series C was co-led by Red Mile and Foresight. And then our Series D was uh, Red Mile. And along the way, we definitely have a lot of really awesome supporters, a lot of individual investors like uh, Tim Cook, for example, mm -hmm. and Brooke Byers and many others. And then we have some strategics as well, like Amazon and Verily. And right. We've really How did built... Tim Cook just show up? <laughs> I forget who referenced it, in, but you know, was interested in learning more about the company. And you know, obviously, he's built one of the best management teams and yep. product-based companies in the history of the planet. Of ever, yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, that was incredibly exciting. And So I he think... just came in here, you gave him the pitch, and he's like, here's some money, basically? <laughs> yeah, this is one of our earlier rounds. Oh, wow. So, what's interesting as well is that when we were just starting out, I think because we had a bit of a different take on biotech and, you know, founder-led and it's a platform and yeah. like it's in Silicon Valley. It's not in Boston. Yeah. A lot of our earlier investors that, you know, took risk on us um, were a lot of these more tech bio investors like right. NFX and uh, Mayfield and others in kind of Silicon Valley who at the time especially were kind of first dipping their toes into the space. And then as we grew as a company, we started to bring in more hardcore healthcare investors like a Red Mile and a Foresight and right, 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 right. many others to Chang. And I think that's a really powerful combination as well, similar to like the founder and experienced executive combo. I think having that combination of healthcare, just deep experience, and then that mm. tech background, but, you know, have biotech experience as well, of course, I think that creates a very uh, robust and powerful investor base for the type of long-term company that we're building. Right. So. Where are you now in terms of development? What are the kind of the next milestones you're working toward? Is it getting something in the clinic, what comes next? Yeah, so right now, you know, we've built up the broadest portfolio of CRISPR systems and technologies in the industry. We've shown over the last 10 years that we can leverage what we call the natural diversity of CRISPR, combine that with engineering, 
to just create new CRISPR systems, new CRISPR technologies, good mm. but double strand breaks. We've proven that, right? And now it's all about how do we bring it to the clinic? You've said double strand breaks a bunch, and I oh, I have to ask okay. what it is. So that's the classic <laughs> CRISPR is scissors. Oh, I see. Yeah, I yeah, understand. Yeah. Okay, that's gotcha. That's the gotcha. classic gotcha. legacy okay. type of doing it. Right, right, right. And then by adding these different, we call it CRISPR plus because it's CRISPR plus a functionality. Yes, 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 yes. That's how you go beyond that kind of initial I function. I see, I see. Okay. Um, whether it's base editing, gene writing, et cetera. Yeah, the big focus of the company is using that to enable a differentiated pipeline, going to tissues that other people can't go to, starting the liver, going to muscle, going to brain, and going after diseases that we could potentially permanently cure that wouldn't be possible if not for mammoth. And so what does that look like in terms of practicalities? Is that getting stuff in the clinic or kind of Yeah, so that's doing more in vivo data. So a classic thing in the industry is doing things like NHP data that's non-human primates. Mm. Um, And then, of course, the big milestone for any company is um, doing IND. IND. Yeah. What is that? Um, So that's the first step of the clinical process. Right, 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 right. And is that happening this year? Uh, We don't have public timelines for it. Oh, okay. That's moving towards the clinic and doing more in vivo work is the name of the game. Look, I wish you all the luck. Uh, It's very, very exciting. And the idea of a one treatment cure, that feels... It's revolutionary. Yeah, that that feels like a very big deal. We're working hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Trevor for taking the time. I want to thank you all for listening, for the ratings, for the reviews, for spreading the word. You can find me in the Times this week at thetimes.co.uk. You can find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson. You can email me danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. I'll be writing about a bunch of stuff this weekend. Mammoth may make it in there as well. Who knows? You'll have to check out the paper or the website to see. Um, That is it for me this week. Thanks again, and we will talk to you very soon. Bye-bye. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers. Airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.